This podcast is for the strange and unusual. Welcome to Crackpot Cocktail Hour. Now I'll leave you with three implications of all this. First, just as we can misperceive the world, we can misperceive ourselves when the mechanisms of prediction go wrong. Understanding this opens many new opportunities in psychiatry and neurology because we can finally get at the mechanisms rather than just treating the symptoms in conditions like depression and schizophrenia. Second, what it means to be me cannot be reduced to or uploaded to a software program running on a robot, however smart or sophisticated. We are biological flesh and blood animals whose conscious experiences are shaped at all levels by the biological mechanisms that keep us alive. Just making computers smarter is not going to make them sentient. Finally, our own individual inner universe, our way of being conscious, is just one possible way of being conscious. And even human consciousness generally, it's just a tiny region in a vast space of possible consciousnesses. Our individual selves and worlds are unique to each of us, but they're all grounded in biological mechanisms shared with many other living creatures. With a greater sense of understanding comes a greater sense of wonder and a greater realization that we are part of and not apart from the rest of nature. Thank you. Dr. Anil Seth. Hey. Hey. Here we are. Oh my God, look how professional we look. Uh, so today our subject is, uh, welcome to Crackpot Cocktail Hour. <laughs> that's our subject? What? It's going to be a short one because that's all we have to say. <laughs> welcome to Crackpot Cocktail Hour. I'm Lacey. I'm Alex. And today we're talking about human sensory perception. I will, I guess, introduce our cocktail first. Our cocktail is titled Nonsense. Nonsense. Um, the inspiration for it is uh, Death in the Afternoon, which Ernest Hemingway said he used to drink all the time, which is champagne and absinthe. <laughs> oh, God. Um, it's one of my husband's favorite drinks. He ne- almost never drinks it because it uh, is potent. <laughs> oh. um, so I've kind of, I think, upgraded that and added some tropical uh, flavors and colors as well. Um, Right. So it's called Nonsense. It consists of three parts dry Prosecco, three parts canned lychee syrup or lychee syrup, depending on how you say it, a half part of absinthe, and one peeled canned lychee, as well as one slice of dragon fruit. So you put lychee in the bottom, and then you kind of assemble the drink on top of it. And after you pour in everything that you need to pour in, you put the slice of dragon fruit on top and arrange a few cocktail caviar on top. I kind of did that decoratively. I put a few cocktail caviar in the bottom as well. Those are lychee flavored um, to go along with the lychee taste of everything. And I happened to get pink dragon fruit somehow I lucked out. So it's actually way prettier than I anticipated. So I'm not going to lie. I'm a little bit afraid to drink this because it looks like a work of art. (laughs) I'm actually afraid that if I take a sip of this, security is going to come in and apprehend me and bad things will happen. The art community is going to get pissed off. (laughs) I'll never be able to go to the Met Gala. I I should be afraid to drink it because it is very full and also very potent. (laughs) I've also had a really long week at work, so maybe this much alcohol is a bad idea. But you know what? We have a three-day weekend. Fear not. (laughs) Cheers. Cheers. 
Oh, I really like that. I wanted it to hit you um, visually first, so I made it very visually striking. Then there's kind of the interesting blend of flavors. I, uh, the Prosecco is sparkling, so in the very beginning you can hear that. And the texture of the fruit as well as the cocktail caviar is supposed to hit you on the touch sense. Yeah. One thing that usually kind of like turns me off when it comes to absinthe is that it has a very distinct licorice flavor to mm. it. And it's, just, it's so bitter. It's like black licorice. Who likes that? I'm sorry if you like black licorice. <laughs> but one of the things that I like about this is because it has so many light and fruity flavors kind of joined with it, it actually accents it. And even though I can taste the licorice part of the absinthe, I still like it. I'm glad that you like it. I, I feel like absinthe is kind of underutilized because people don't really know what to do with it. And so I had the thought occur to me just to mix it with lychee. I drove around to like five or six different grocery stores this past week looking for fresh lychees and no one has them yet. Mm. It's too early in the season. And so uh, the canned lychee was actually better because it has the syrup that we need to kind of balance out everything else. So it made it come together actually. Perfect then. <laughs> in U District, I went to a bar that actually served like an absinthe cocktail. And I think they use like an orange juice or something in it. So maybe it was like an absinthe mimosa. I don't know. Mm. But it was, it was very good, but it was also, I think it was a little too hard on the absence. Sure, so yeah. it was like one of those things where, oh, I'm drinking it because I'm so cool and I'm 21 and it's absinthe. <laughs> yeah, I think that's that's that was definitely my experience with absinthe the first time too. I think we all just like um, did shots of it or something ridiculous because you don't know what life is or like what you're supposed to do. There's like a gentle process of pouring water over a sugar cube that you're supposed to do. And we're like, whatever, let's shoot it. And it was just like the war. It was like... Jaeger, like spoiled Jaegermeister. <laughs> yeah, it's like we're Americans. Grab that solo cup. We're just gonna go for it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it was um, it was a fun night, but not a fun drink. <laughs> Shall we jump into our subject? Yes. Uh, so this week, Lacey's covering the subject. Um, I am more or less a spectator with a lot of thoughts and feelings. <laughs> this is going to kind of be our formula going forward. One of us picks a story or subject, and then we kind of have a group discussion. That's a good thing to say. Yeah, that, that okay. sounds good. <laughs> um, and we have our themed cocktail every week as well that I come up with. You know, let's just dive in. <laughs> All right, let's dive in. So I, I wanted to cover perception for this episode, partly because I think it's really foundational to most of what I imagine we're going to be talking about as we go through this podcast. Mm -hmm. To me, this is the idea that we are able to observe only... I was talking to uh, my brother actually today, and he was uh, telling me about the theory of uh, narrow gaps, which is the idea that uh, all of our senses, like take our vision, for example, we're only able to see a certain amount of light, oh, yeah. right? Like we can't see ultraviolet, we can't see infrared, like anything above and beyond our range, we're not able to see. And that applies for literally everything about not only just our sensory perception, but even like our ability to understand ideas, I think. Mm -hmm. uh, so we're continually perceiving the world through these narrow gaps, and we are only ever able to accumulate information through these narrow gaps. And so most of, we ha we can assume that most of the universe as we know it is not necessarily contained within those narrow gaps. It wouldn't be biologically useful to us to evolve, to necessarily be able to perceive everything we've evolved to survive in the environment we live in. Exactly. Um, I think that's a perfect way to put it. Uh, so I take it that's, a, I, I came in right when you were finishing up your call with your brother today. Was the narrow gaps the thing that you were saying, thank you for giving me 
me that, that insight that point when the podcast. Yeah, that, yeah, that was like, uh, very as you walked in, I was like, hey, sorry, I've got to let you go, but that was amazing. And yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. I was like, I'm, I did this research on the perception, and I didn't even come across that. And he was like, oh, well, I'm sure you know this theory. And it was like, no, but that's really a great way to look at it. I think we should have your brother on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> well, he told me that he uses it frequently as a motivational tool with people that he's managing or working with. Um, and the idea that your perception of yourself is only through these narrow gaps. So you're not getting a full picture of who you are if you're only focusing on whatever. That's a good point. I like how he turns into a universal formula. I like that. Um, we did talk a little bit about this uh, before. Like I showed you that picture, which we will put on our Instagram, the difference between what we see as humans versus what a bird's vision may pick up. Mm. And that's because as far as evolution is concerned for that species, that's what benefited them. There's no reason why you and I should be able to look into a telescope and see a black hole, which is why they needed to come up with an algorithm so they were actually able to take that first photo of the black hole because that's just not something that runs in our field that we needed to evolve to be safe. Sure. Wouldn't it be cool if we found out birds can see black holes? How would we even know? Oh my god. <laughs> so someone work on that bird translator? <laughs> I have questions. It's Sandy Bullock from Bird Box all up in here. <laughs> I've got questions. <laughs> the birds are freaking out. There are black holes nearby. That's what the creature was the whole time. The whole time? Oh. <laughs> um, You're so clever. <laughs> Uh, a, a few years ago, part of part of um, how I think this relates to uh, what we want to talk about as well is uh, dovetailing into psychic stuff. I uh, picked up a book a few years ago that was information on how to tune one's psychic abilities, how to really like get those working. And I was like, great, I'm super curious. Bought it at half price books, finally picked it up and uh, looked through it. And the first thing was that you needed to become as tuned in as possible to all of your senses. You needed to make sure that you were focusing on every single one of them and taking in as much information actively as possible through all of those. That sounds painful. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, I, I have chronic pain and experiencing all of the touch sensations, not necessarily a positive thing. And I also have a really good sense of smell and the world is made up of stinky smells. <laughs> Um, okay, uh, so yeah, I, I just feel like the idea that we're missing out on most of the information in the universe. Uh, that being said, I do want to talk about kind of the information we are able to take in as humans and kind of establish that as our baseline, at least. I want to talk about kind of each of our specific senses, some of the senses that are lesser known, and then uh, kind of open it up to like what we think some of the implications of that are. But I'm also curious about any thoughts that you have like along the way. Uh, take I would, me on a journey. I, I was curious to know, can you name any of the lesser known senses that aren't like the five ones um sense of balance mm. i believe is one uh sense of spatial awareness uh yeah it? yeah shit uh so sense of balance is equilibrioception yeah and sense of uh spatial awareness is proprioception and isn't there oh gosh uh there's something that in football they call uh kinetic awareness oh i'm not sure you know that is one your they refer to it for example for a receiver in the nfl because as a receiver you're kind of trained to run specific routes you're not supposed to be running with your head on your shoulder the whole time mm. it's usually like you're going to run a few yards in this direction and then you're going to pivot and go in this direction and okay. then at some point you may turn around and catch the ball after so many paces or you may go even further okay and these routes each have a number like you're going to run a zero you're going to run a five and the idea of kinetic awareness is you're so in tune with your quarterback in the sport in general that even when your back is turned you have a general idea of where that ball is oh okay that's pretty cool yeah 
I feel like I don't have any of that, and that's why I'm not good at sports and constantly running into things. Yeah, I feel like there's something to that. I don't yeah. think that's just, like, nothing. Yeah. <laughs> um, thermoception is kind of being Temperature! Able to, yeah, exactly. Like, And especially, I think, like, being able to tell the temperature when it's in a dangerous range. You know, like, whether this is more threatening to my life. Um, chronoception? What's chronoception? Uh, the Chronological? Awareness, the awareness of the passing of time. Uh, there are also a couple of senses that I found out that animals get, but humans don't get. Interesting, do tell. Uh, electroception is uh, sharks specifically can sense me- uh, electric fields around them. We talked about this. When? Recently? When? <laughs> On AI lands. Okay. Semi, semi-recently. I edited the episode. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I can vouch for this. I actually said, I think sharks do this, but I might be wrong. Well, you were right. <laughs> Apparently. Go um, drunk past Alex. Isn't that great, though? Like, they can... Th- like, there's this whole world of electric field sensing awareness that we just, like, don't have at all. Mm-hmm. That we're just constantly immersed in and we just have no idea about it. Well, also, uh, don't some animals have a lobe or something on the front of their brain that helps them detect earthquakes? Uh, I think that's related to uh, possibly that. Possibly mm-hmm. um, the last one that I found was uh, magnetoreception, which is sensing the magnetic field of the Earth. Yeah, yeah that I, would make sense. Yeah, I think that's kind of related to that. Uh, so the first one I wanted to get into of our classic senses is vision, and that's because I think it's the most studied. It's the one that a lot of us define a lot of our sensory experience by. If you have access to vision, I think our visual cortex takes up a massive portion of our brain for processing. I would agree with that. I think if most people were to be asked, would you rather be blind or deaf? Most people would say deaf. I think because the sense, the notion, the feeling that it is so much of an experience of the world, but so much of that. Uh, So I found a quote uh, from Arthur Schopenhauer, quote, every man takes the limits of his own field of vision for the limits of the world. Oh, I like that. I like it both in the literal and metaphorical sense. Yeah, I thought it was uh, really applicable. Yeah. Oh, I really do like that. <laughs> so I was pleased to find that because it kind of sets up, you know, the, that argument for all of the senses, but also that argument from a, you know, ideological standpoint. That's fair. We have uh, limited vision partly because of our ability to perceive r- limited ranges of light. Like we were talking about, you know, infrared, ultraviolet, we can't see, but like birds can, I think. Mm-hmm. And we also have a blind spot because of the optic nerve. So our brain's just kind of always filling in this gap in our vision for us because we can't actually see this part of our field of vision. And also because of the placement of our eyes is another Mm -hmm. limitation. So we can't see in like 360 angles because our eyes are both at the front of our head. Uh, One thing that stood out to me as I was reading sense stuff was, of course, disability things. Because so much of what I think abled people define as the human experience is really the abled human experience. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, blind people are still people, but it's hard for us to imagine having the experience of the world where you don't have access to vision. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I actually one time was trying to consider what it was like to be blind. Uh, this is before I actually went blind in one eye. <laughs> the universe was like, here, bitch, I'll show you. <laughs> but uh, one way I try to think about it is what do things look like directly behind you right now? <laughs> It's because you don't have anything there. It's it's not blank back there. It's not black. It's nothing. Because it's literally nothing. You have no (laughs) access to that information. Yeah. 
It's weird. Yeah, it, it's kind of creepy to think about. <laughs> like, I, I don't actually know what's behind me. Yeah, and actually, even when uh, I went blind in my one eye, it was more like I had a permanent obstruction mm. in that eye. Um, because uh, when I had optic neuritis, uh, and to explain what optic neuritis is, essentially, optic neuritis is usually an early indicator of an autoimmune disease, usually MS. In my case, luckily, it was not. In my case, uh, sometimes you can either get stressed to a point, or you may have an illness to a point where your white blood cells end up attacking your own body, which is why a lot of people think it ties to autoimmune diseases. Now, one of the more susceptible tissues is actually the tissue around your optic nerve. The way your eyeball works is your eyeball has information travel along that tissue to your brain. So my eye was working, my brain was working, and there was nothing technically wrong with my optic nerve, but the information it traveled along to connect one to the other, it wasn't there. Hmm. So imagine trying to access a website when your internet is down. Your computer works. The internet's still there. It doesn't disappear <laughs> just because you're not connected to it. But There's just connection. no way to connect to that information. Wow. So in my eye, it almost looked like it was almost like a gray-yellow fog. When I first woke up, have you ever woken up and you feel like you have like a film on your eye so it's like really blurry and mm. nasty? Yeah. And then like you rub your eye and you're fine? That's what I thought it was when I first woke up. Sure. I woke up and I was like, I just need to wipe some shit out of my eye. And then it was... No. And it wouldn't go away. And it was actually, it was deteriorating more and more throughout the day. Oh. So shapes that I was able to see in the morning, I couldn't see in the afternoon. And it got to the point where I remember being at home, standing in front of my Christmas tree, and I could not see the lights on my Christmas tree. Was that just terrifying? It was fucking terrifying. Yeah. Um, and now I consistently live with the fear that my vision's just gonna disappear. And it was like walking around with an eye patch on because I just couldn't access that information. But losing your vision, it is, it's a terrifying thing because like you said, it's probably the one that we rely on the most. Yeah. Um, but I do want to say on the converse side of that, I, I agree and I think that what you said also gets at a little bit of the nature of the difference between a disability you're born with versus one that's acquired, right? Having never had that experience versus having to now relearn how to experience the world. Because I kind of think of uh, people, like blind people, as having a little bit of a superpower because I've read that they have their audio processing starts to mm -hmm. take up some of the visual cortex. And so it kind of patches over to understand, like to create a mental picture of the world mm -hmm. somewhat. And I was like, oh, that's kind of incredible and a part of human potential that we don't talk about very often that our brains can do things like that. Yeah, you lost this tool, but these tools can make up for some of the information. Yeah. So I'm just gonna use these more. And it's like, oh, well now we know that our brains can do that. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like that's a field of research. Um, there's also some blind people can use echolocation to kind of- <gasps> I've heard about that. I thought that was really neat. Um, I've actually heard about, there's a, actually a blind gentleman that you know those clickers that you get for dogs for training mm -hmm. them? He, uh, I remember seeing like on 2020 or something when I was in middle I saw school. this too. Yeah, and he would uh, take other blind people or people who want to learn how and to use it. Yeah, and he would like shows like you hear different sounds like off of soft surfaces versus hard surfaces. And how far and close. Yeah. And, oh, oh yeah. I, I thought that was so cool. I thought that was really neat. There's also a form of baseball where uh, the ball is beeping. And so it's for blind people. It's an it's like a softball-sized ball, and they hear the ball, and then they also run toward these bases. That, and so I thought that was 
amazing. That is actually really cool. It, <laughs> you can play baseball as a blind person yeah. entirely through sound. And I just feel like uh, that means so much for our ability, for our brains to adjust to things and mm. to process things in a way that's adaptive. I, I don't know, it blows my mind getting to think about things like that. Yeah. Well, sometimes I think of our senses as a muscle. The more you use it, the stronger it's going to get. Mm -hmm. um, but I think that's going back to what you were saying earlier that we usually think about the human experience as able-bodied human. I know a lot of us, whenever we see someone who has any form of disability, be it blind, deaf, physically disabled, or other, immediately we think we need to help them because they're not giving the full experience. But the fact that people can live full lives with these things, I think that's something that we also need to remember as a society, as a people. I totally agree. Uh, and then the last no note I just wanted to make about uh, the vision and blind people particularly is the notion that in the movie Bird Box, where, Fantastic film. We're seeing, we're you know, seeing the monster, seeing the thing is the dangerous thing to you, and so people who have their vision have to cover it up. Blind people would have the advantage; they would be in no danger, and they would have theoretically already learned to have lived without the power of vision. Mm -hmm. And so, I love the idea of thinking about that. Yes, as things stand now in our world, as it stands right this second, able-bodied is still probably going to have an easier time because of the way things are constructed and because of human-created obstacles in a lot of ways. But if things were even just slightly different, <laughs> we wouldn't have the same advantages. It's just very much about how situated in this specific time and place we are. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I actually, um, I worked with a uh, gentleman for a while who was autistic, and we actually had a lot of conversations about his autism, many of which he solicited. And he would tell me that, you know, he clearly understood things, but he almost had a time dilation thing where sometimes it would be very easy for him to lose track of time just because of how his brain was processing things. The chrono section's a little different. Exactly. And he also had uh, some physical limitations, like he had trouble like with finite things. He couldn't tie his shoes. Mm. It, that was very difficult for him. That being said, there were things that he was very fast at. He was obviously very smart. He was very clever. And he's also one of the sweetest people I've ever met in my entire life. Mm. And it was a great conversation to have because he was like, I know I was born differently. And I know there are things that people around me can do better in this construct of society because that's how the majority of people were designed. Mm. That being said, I'm still able to live my life and have a happy life. And he's one of the happiest people I've ever met in my life. Yeah, I, I feel like it speaks to the fact that, you know, I think especially able-bodied people can sometimes come from that this note, like, I should just pity someone who is different than me. Mm -hmm. I should pity someone who, like, doesn't have all of the strengths I perceive myself to have. And it's like, could definitely see the other side of the coin where it's like, you don't actually have the power to dilate time. You don't actually have the power to, I, I know a lot of autistic people have increased empathy and empathic ability mm -hmm. and, and it's like that's this whole other increased human capacity that you're missing out on because you're just focusing on perceived deficits that's a huge soapbox I'm gonna step right off of. yeah I feel like we can we can go on this tangent for a while <laughs> yeah for sure uh, moving on to hearing which I think is kind of the second you know big one that we tend to think about with senses I really love the notion that what what we see and what we hear are continually integrating with each other to form a picture um, and a perception of it. So what we see can alter our idea of what we are hearing. 
And there's a video online, if you Google, it's on YouTube, it's called uh, the McGurk Effect. And it's where somebody is saying ba, like a sheep, ba, over and over. And you can see them and their lips moving to say the ba sound. And then the video changes to, the sound stays exactly the same, ba, like a sheep. But the video changes to a video of a man making pa, P-A-H sound. And you start to hear P-A-H, even though you know that the audio is different because you're seeing his lips make that. (laughs) Isn't that? That is fascinating. Fascinating. Uh, yeah, so everybody, you can go and look that up. I thought that was like uh, just a real point for yeah. that notion. Well, have you ever seen like uh, where they may take a scene from a movie, like how it is raw and how it normally is, but then like they'll change whatever the background music mm, is and yeah. it takes on a completely the different tone. tone. Uh, or like uh, the I, I like the bad lip readings too, where they try to make it look like, and you can see how someone might be yeah, saying yeah. that. I, I thought I also learned an interesting disability related thing about uh, hearing and people who are blind and deaf and trying to understand communication, uh, there is a method called the Tadoma speech reading method, wherein people who are blind and deaf place their fingers over the mouth, the lips of someone who is speaking, and they're able to parse out what they're saying. Oh. And I thought that was super fascinating. And if you teach it to someone early enough, then they can learn to speak as well by doing that, because they learn the way that the mouth moves. But American Sign Language kind of replaced that and placing your hands over someone's hands who are doing ASL if you're Mm. blind and deaf, replace that. So there's only about 50, according to what I read, there's only about 50 people in the world right now who use the Tadoma speech reading method. Interesting. Oh, is uh, the Tadoma speech reading method more effective than the sign language method? I'm not sure. Um, I think my theory, and I think probably the parsimonious idea is just the feeling of personal invasion. (laughs) Yeah, that's what I was going to say, where people just like really creeped out by it. Yeah, and so I think in some ways, uh, you know, the interpersonal factors are important and it actually increases access to communication if someone's not feeling violated in order to communicate with you. So someone like you to come here real quick. Let me just just touch your mouth. Yeah, and then so I'm like, I can understand like viscerally like why that was difficult, but I thought it was fascinating. I feel like you and I are very close. I'm not comfortable putting my hand actually on your hand. I know, yeah. And even you were- I leaned away. You were immediately like, you know. (laughs) I'll cuddle you in Canada, but please don't put your hand over my mouth. Also, I don't want anything over my hand or or my mouth or my nose. It's a very like claustrophobia thing for me. But does this smell like chloroform to you? (laughs) (laughs) I'll never get close enough to know. Bad touch, bad touch. Uh, I also, um, I also, okay, so related to hearing, I wanted to talk about the idea uh, that I found today that sounds can make us sick. The death box. The death box. So I tried to find the source on that, and I couldn't. So um, could you talk about the death box really quickly? So you can find it through Creepity Wikipedia. Actually, one of my favorite coverages of it is on an episode of Dark Matters, which is hosted by the steward of Gondor, which she has one of the creepiest voices in the world. He also plays uh, Dr. Bishop on Fringe. So the idea of the death box. Now, two scientists, I believe they were actually working on a different subject, and when they were in their laboratory, they started feeling very uncomfortable, very sick, they kind of got the heebie-jeebies, and they were trying to figure out what the source of this was, and it turned out there was a fan that while it was oscillating, one of the blades was just a little bit warped, and because it was warped, it was developing this frequency that was making them sick. And immediately, their studies changed. They wanted to know what caused this phenomena. This eventually led into something which has been theoretically called the death box. Now, the death box is a theoretical noise-causing device which, when it plays at a certain frequency, can cause insanity, pain, 
convulsions, sickness, and or potentially death. Now, it is one of those things that may or may not have existed around the MKUltra era, around the Vietnam era, and there are some rumored uses of it, in a, as in a very X-Files way, rumors of it being used during the Vietnam War when we were doing a lot of audio bombardment in the jungles. Officially, according to US documents, it is only a theoretical device. If it ever was constructed, it's never been used. But that's according to official records. Mm. Also take into account that things like the, the stealth bomber and the stealth fighter were both being used by the US Air Force at least a decade before it was actually ever revealed to the public. I actually remember hearing about the railgun being used by the Navy back in 2004, I want to say, maybe around that time, mid-2000s, and it was only recently confirmed by the US government. Oh, wow. So does it exist? <laughs> does it not exist? There's really no confirmation, and just because there's rumors of something existing doesn't necessarily mean it exists, because there's also rumors that we actually own the UFOs from the Roswell crash, and we're flying them all around the Nevada desert. <laughs> so just because there's rumors of something existing doesn't necessarily mean that it is real or not, but the concept of the death box is very real. Yeah, the physical thing that it's exploiting is very real. The mm -hmm. notion that vibrations can make us sick. And I, I used to think of um, the, I know like a lot of woo-woo uh, people talk about like vibrations and like, you know, <laughs> you gotta be vibrating on like the same plane or whatever. Um, and I was like, okay, well that sounds like non-science bullshit. Mm -hmm. But looking, I mean, looking into that, that's not total bullshit, right? Like we're mm -hmm. mostly made of water <laughs> and it sound, sound waves do go through water and can affect it. And so it would stand to reason logically yeah. <laughs> that in some way, like the substance of our bodies is affected by sound. Like, yeah. It's not out of the realm of possibility. Like a, <laughs> I, I'm just don't, I used to kind of just be really dismissive of that idea, I guess. Well, I'm sure you've heard of the brown note. Yes. Yeah. Uh, I saw that Mythbusters. Uh, it was busted. They that. They did bust it. Uh, but there are frequencies, again, speaking of narrow gaps, but your brother brought up, there are frequencies we can't hear. The most, I think, exploitative way to uh, mention this would be like dog whistles. Right. We can't hear it the dog can. There are different frequencies that our ears just don't have access to because we never needed to have access to just based on our evolution. Yeah, exactly. And that's kind of, that's it for me for hearing, unless you had any more standout thoughts on that. No. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I wanted to dip into kind of the two interrelated senses and then uh, finish up with the like powerhouse sense. So the two interrelated senses uh, are taste and smell. Mm -hmm. I, I think of them as codependent. <laughs> um, it's, a lot of people do. Yeah, it's uh, very, uh, you can't have one without the other. Um, and it's not, that's not purely true, I think, but they feed into each other so much. Like smell feeds into taste specifically so much that it's really difficult to taste without it. Like if you hold your nose to taste a bitter tasting like medicine then you don't taste it as long as you chase it with something because <laughs> the second you open your nose you're like oh yeah that's a good point because i always wondered why people would plug their nose when they were taking a better medication or even like when i would plug my nose i'm like oh god here comes the day quill yeah it's it's because it, it cuts down on most of the taste of it yeah oh that's interesting Taste is arguably the weakest sense. Uh, it's also not been studied uh, as much. Smell and taste haven't been studied as much. I did find a really cool article from io9 that was talking about a study where wine experts, they did a study about taste and smell uh, with wine experts, and they gave them a red wine and a white wine, but it was really just a white wine and then an, the same white wine that with was food coloring in it. <laughs> so same wine, one, one's just died, and they asked them to describe the different wines, and they described them completely different. 
differently. And the red wine got like the words like jamminess and berries and things like that that are usually associated with red wines, even though it was the exact same thing. Oh, I also wonder like how much of that that just like every psalm just like feeding you like a bunch of bullshit and being like, oh, I'm supposed to say this because of the color. But also how much of it is uh, what you were talking about earlier, the connection between sight and sound. Right. Because what we see affects, I think, what we taste as well. Yeah. Well, didn't it also come out recently that all Skittles are actually the same flavor? The only thing that's different is the color of them? I keep eating them and I don't buy that. <laughs> I don't buy that either. Because the green one used to be green, but it was lime. And you can't tell me that those Skittles don't taste differently. I have like <laughs> blindly reached into a bag of Skittles and I always know what flavor I'm pulling out. Yeah. So I think that one might actually be bullshit. I wonder if like maybe the Skittles base all taste the same and like the candy coated shells are the things that taste and look different. Yeah. Um, I did actually learn that all Fruit Loops and all Tricks are the same flavor. That makes sense sense to me. Yeah. I tried to isolate those when I was a kid and couldn't. Yeah, and that's because it's the same, but some people think that the banana might actually taste like a banana flavor because that's what they're looking at. Mm, yeah, so I think, again, it kind of goes, it's more evidence as to how our senses feed into each other and how they rely on each other to yeah. a certain extent. Um, but I just thought that was really great. And yeah, I also had a note about the uh, the bullshit that is like wine tasting because I, I love wine mm -hmm. tasting. I think it's really fun and like to go, it's like you go talk to someone who's invested in their thing and their story and they've got like a place they're attached to and they want to share this experience with you. But it's like, you're just using these clues to try to guess what you should say. <laughs> yeah. You're just like, oh, well, you you told me that this might taste like this, so I'm going to say, oh, I do get peach. Yes, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> I, uh, I went with Heath to a wine tasting at the Columbia Tower back when he was a wine steward. Mm. And I don't remember who specifically was putting it on, but honestly, I was there for the free wine. Sure. There were some wines I liked more than others, but they did give you like the whole spiel of, I don't know, this one's going to be like this. And we grew it here. And this year was a fabulous year. And I was just like, this tastes like shit. And, and like wine don't, I mean, like obviously it doesn't all taste the same. Like yeah. wines taste differently, but a lot of it is the razzle dazzle. Yeah. Yeah. I did go to a one wine tasting that QFC put on back when Heath was a wine steward. And one of the Dom reps was there and they had every kind of Dom Ooh. to taste. And I told you, I am a slut <laughs> when it comes to champagne. And I was just like, well, this is my corner. <laughs> I guess I'll be here. <laughs> Heath is like, where's my wife? We're trying scotches. I'm like, usually not tonight. I'm gonna drink some fancy wine. I, uh, I took a friend who hates wine, wine tasting, and she was the best of all of us at the wine tasting. And I nicknamed her Cabernet Marie because she was so good at it. But she was like begrudgingly good. Like she, she would actually be able to taste what the person was going for without them telling you. And so she'd like taste a red and be like, this, this is like dirt. And he would be like, it is earthy. And like, I would be like, I don't taste dirt in this. And she's like, ugh, tastes like dirt. Give me another one. And I'd be like, okay, what's this? She's like, I don't know, it's like bitter peaches. What are those? And I'm like, apricot? And she's like, yeah, it's like apricot. <laughs> she's like, and I hate it. The sleeper has woken. <laughs> yeah, and like every song that we talked to was like, oh my goodness, she has the gift. And she's like, blah. <laughs> you can finish this. I don't, I don't want it. It's like, it was bullshit. <laughs> it was, it was really. Take your dirt wine elsewhere. Power is not distributed to those who want it. <laughs> 
Well, Heath never liked wine before he became a wine steward. And I think there's also something that's very, like, snooty about being about wine. Sure. It's the classy way to get drunk. Yeah. But after being a wine steward and sampling all sorts of wines, he actually, he does like wine now, as you've seen from our extensive wine collection. And I'm just <laughs> like, I'll take whatever dark beers on tap. Is it just Guinness? Okay. <laughs> Guinness is good. I do like Guinness. Yeah. So that's, that's like, taste for me. Uh, oh, oh, we did. Nope, that's not. I lied. There was one more thing. Uh, there is... <laughs> some people are super tasters. <laughs> so just like you are very sensitive to hearing, I've got, like, sense of smell that I wish I didn't have. And with our powers combined. <laughs> we are super sensitive. <laughs> um, but, yeah, so there's uh, there are people who are super tasters and uh, have the ability to, like, taste... Um, it's, I think, wider range of flavor as well as like more intensity of different things. That makes sense. Um, so yeah, I thought that was uh, really interesting. I remember uh, when I was a kid, there was a Dryer's ice cream commercial where the guy was a super taster and he would taste the Dryer's ice cream mm. to make sure it was correct. And one of the things he did specifically is he used a gold spoon and there was something about the gold spoon. It wasn't just to be fancy. There was something about that actual metal that didn't keep the other flavors on it. Oh. So there was something about the metal that he was using. Interesting. Yeah, see, I have a thing about the taste of metal or the smell of metal or the feel of metal. I'm just like, whoa. I don't like drinking out of a can. It just bothers me because I can always feel the metallic. I can always taste the metallic. I pointed it out to Heath and I have ruined drinking out of cans for him. See, that doesn't bother me at all because I grew up drinking out of cans, I guess. So I'm just like totally desensitized to it. If I have a choice between can or glass, always in a glass. Interesting. Always. See, like watches bother me. Like if, (laughs) if like we used to wear a watch and I could like he had his hand like on my leg or something and I was like I can't can you please move your hand and he's like oh is that hurting and I'm like no it just like the metal from your watch like I can smell it because of the heat from your skin and I hate it and he's like well that's not normal Speaking of a weird uh, metallic incident, so I had told Heath that I had fibromyalgia before we got together, and one night early in our relationship, I went to sit down on my mattress on the floor because I was classy and 22 and living in a studio, and he sat down next to me, and he handed me a soda, and he had a soda, and he sat down next to me, and thinking he was going to be funny, he put it in the middle of my back. (sighs) And I think the sound I made was exactly this. And I just like kind of like oh god flailed and like collapsed. I can feel that because it was the combination of the cold, the sensitive spot, and the metal. Yeah, all all of it, all of it. And I just kind of like I flailed and fell on my side. (laughs) He's just like, "You're right." I didn't mean to break you. I just wanted to startle you. I was like, "Don't do that again." He was like, "Well." Obviously. He found your standby switch. (laughs) If you ever need to reset me for any reason, nice cold can to the back. (laughs) I might murder you when I wake up, but if you ever need to, like, knock me out for a Cold can to the back. (laughs) It's Alex's off switch. That in chloroform. Well, that's everyone's off switch. (laughs) Regarding smell, I found we're not great at measuring our smell. We're not great at measuring olfactory. We don't really know how to do that super well. Uh, So that's most of the information I found. I do have a personal story. I remember being in college. I was a part of a volunteer organization that was like academic and volunteer. I still have the t-shirt from it. I did not go to many meetings, did not feel like participating wholly, but one of 
the ones that I did go to was a talk with a woman who had hoped to work with homeless people, but she had the same affliction I have, which is like the sense of smell, which is just way too strong. And she was like, because of the nature of being unwashed generally, like I cannot physically tolerate mm-hmm. being around people who are unwashed. And I have heart and care about these people and like really want to be able to, uh, her her words are minister to them, but you know, I uh, couldn't do it. And so she talked about having prayed consistently to lose her sense of smell or have it weakened and it happened and she took it as like a blessing because she was able to do the thing that she wanted and some people may take that as a miracle from god and if you interpret it that way that's up to you but the way i took that was um wow our brains are really responsive to those kinds of desires yeah yeah um how much of it is a psychosomatic reaction right yeah so i actually was i was listening to a podcast uh yesterday and in that particular episode the host was sick and you could like feel how her nose was stuffed up Mm. and she was just trying to power through it and as i was listening to the episode i started feeling sick (sighs) my goodness i started being like is this happening because there has been something going around my office office I was like no I can't be sick I haven't been sick in over a year but by the time I moved on to the next episode I started feeling better and by like the third episode I was listening to I felt fine (laughs) it's just the suggestion of being sick it was that strong isn't that just interesting yeah yeah well uh, do you remember the Mythbusters when they were we're gonna talk about Mythbusters a lot in this episode (laughs) uh there's a Mythbusters when they were testing why uh you shouldn't like we have like a drip Uh you shouldn't like wipe it on your hand and how much it actually spreads oh yeah, I didn't see that, but it. <laughs> so what they did is Adam had a hose that went over his head and down beside his nose, and it would be consistently dripping. Uh-huh. And the drip was UV reactive. Oh. So it was looking clear, but he did it so uh, they did makeup on it, so it looked like he was actually sick. But before he did the test with people, when he was pretending to be sick, they had him just put together a model airplane. And the point was to show, like, turn on the black light at the end, and look at all the boogers. Oh. But he was saying because he felt it dripping and where it was, it felt just like being sick. And he actually started to feel sick because of the suggestion of it. Wow. So like our brains are so susceptible to any information they're getting. Like any yeah. sensory input, they're like, well, dripping nose must be sick. This person's sick. I must be sick. Like fan is going weird. Now I'm sick. <laughs> yeah. I mean, uh, we'll have to do a, a more focused episode on the idea of mass hysteria. Oh, yeah. Because... Um, Um, I've got stories for days. I'm sure you do, too. But, I mean, that's another thing that lends to how much of our senses and how much of our reactions and what's happening with our body is just our brain being like, well, we do this now? Well, and um, the idea of mirror neurons, that when we, Mm -hmm. you know, experience something via another person, we internalize that for ourselves and experience it as though it were our own. The last thing I wanted to talk about related to smell was there's a woman named Joy Milne, M-I-L-N-E, who can detect Parkinson's disease by smell. What? She noticed her husband started smelling muskier 10 years before he was diagnosed with Parkinson's and so now scientists are like now conducting research with her and she uh, was able to sniff out Parkinson's and all of the the sample of people that had it she she identified it correctly and then in a sample of people who didn't have it she identified one of them as having it and then he went in and got a test and had it uh, they said it was related to um, sebum which is like the your skin secretions mm-hmm. and the smell related to that specifically yeah so I was going to say going back to narrow gaps which I <laughs> 
think you're right. It is a great thing that your brother brought up. We're not necessarily trained to smell Parkinson's, but there are natural things that will happen with your body when you have a specific disease. It may secrete through uh, your skin cells, like uh, maybe what's happening in this case, or maybe showing itself in other ways. And because we're just not evolutionarily tuned to it, we may not immediately pick it up, but that doesn't mean that it's not there. Yeah. That's fascinating. I love that. I, I thought that was uh, incredible. Well, I mean, like right now there is music playing on radio waves all around us. Can you hear it? No. Nope. I, I know I can't. But like, are there animals or plants who are like rocking out to all of it right now? There's just like a heavy metal fern somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> But we, we know that that's out there because we were able to discover those waves and we've developed a technology that can tap into it and tap into the music that we put on those radio waves. We can't see it, we can't touch it, and we can only hear it with our technology, but it's still there. Mind-blowing. I love it so much. It gets me excited, this idea that we're missing out on just about everything. There could be an entire universe existing around us that we don't even know is there just because we can't perceive it. Yeah. Uh, and we have, I mean, our whole universe that does exist that we, I think, know maybe 1% of, like, the experience, if that. Yeah. And I think that's something we talked about before, uh, how there's so much dark matter in the universe, but dark matter in its loose definition is just stuff where we're like, feels like it's empty space. We know there's something there to a degree we just don't know what it is because it's not something we can detect or interact with and it may not all be the same thing they're just voids in our perception i like the idea that it may not all be the same thing yeah the the sense that i wanted to kind of wrap the five cents discussions on and then i've got a couple bits about implications but the sense i wanted to wrap on is touch because i think touch is like a forgotten sense i think we when we think of our five senses we let's like the oh right touch is a sense mm -hmm. because it's i think probably the most foundational would you say this is the one we're most sensitive to? <laughs> <laughs> I definitely would. Um, but it's the one yeah, we forget about. I think it's, uh, I've read that it was the most complex of the five senses. Uh, we can sense things like pressure. We can sense temperature. We can sense itch. Like, there's so many different sensations that we take in through touch. Mm -hmm. uh, we don't, I, I read that we don't have, like, a word for somebody who is permanently not able to experience touch. We call it touch blind. That's, that's the word we use. Uh, my, my husband, Lee was like, oh, well, I mean, numb is a word for that. And I'm like, yeah, but I don't think there's a word for, like, a person who is this. Yeah. Because numb also has other implications, I think. Numb feels temporary, and also numb almost means obscured. Yeah, yeah. Maybe there, as opposed to not being able to actually perceive. So I feel like there was yeah, a difference. Yeah, it covers a whole, like, I feel like gradient of yeah. how much you can sense something. Um, we have more touch receptors in some parts of our body than in others. I think um, it said the faces, the hands uh, are a lot more touch receptive than like our backs and our legs. So it feels we are able to pick up more sensations from those places than we are. Sense. Yeah, I feel like if, if I touch something with my fingertips, it's, I'm getting a lot more information than like the back of my leg. Well, that's what you're exploring for information with. I mean, how many times have you been like, what is this? And then you reach out for it. Right. Whereas if like we did spend our whole lives just like back our thighs up to things to sense them probably hey. I wonder you know if our brains would be wired differently to take all that in instead you don't of our do fingers. the grind system <laughs> <laughs> I think I've been doing it wrong <laughs> That's what grinder was. Oh my oh gosh. <laughs> I've made some mistakes. Gotta sensitize those thighs. <laughs> <laughs> I 
Uh, our amount of touch receptors peaks around age 16 to 18 and decreases as we age. So I can see like some of that being a good thing because we lose some of our sensitivity to pain and to temperature changes. And, you know, maybe that maybe makes us a little bit hardier for the world. But we also lose fun parts of touch, <laughs> which are like pleasure and being the ability to achieve orgasm because of your ability to perceive pleasure. So that could be a negative thing, as well as losing some of our sense of touch can contribute to our falls, like people who are older be falling more because you can't sense the ground underneath as much of your feet as you could in the past. Well, also you were talking about how um, senses deteriorate over time. And as we were saying, one of them is sense of balance. Yes. Yeah, the equilibrioception. Mm -hmm. In addition to discriminative touch, where we sense like the size and shape of things and emotional touch, where we get like the pleasant feeling from the touch, we also have a system just to sense pain. And we have a system to process the emotionally painful aspect of physical pain. We have a system for that. Interesting. <laughs> that is the part of our uh, pain that could be worked on through like meditation or opiates. It's the part that loosens your how many fucks you give about the pain as opposed to the pain yeah. itself. One thing I remember hearing is that um, emotional pain registers in a very similar way in the brain to physical pain. Yes, I've read that as well, yeah. particularly feelings of like rejection or isolation. Yeah, uh, I know that I one time went through a horrible breakup and I just remember being devastated. I remember the consistency pain but it wasn't a physical pain but it was mm. also my butt just buzzed <laughs> <laughs> yeah i remember just like the deep hollow chest pain of like going through something yeah, really traumatic yeah. like that um, um and i mean we both uh, had sudden losses in different ways and just like that feeling something was being ripped out of you yeah. it's a very real pain but it's not a tangible pain in a way yeah i i have just also like a caveat uh i brought another soapbox that i'm gonna step on just really quickly and then i'll gracefully I don't know, go ahead and enjoy it. Don't so fall. <laughs> Um, but here's my caveat about dissociating from the emotional pain system. <laughs> from my own experience with chronic pain and mindfulness, I do believe that there are limits to this ability to kind of exploit the separate systems of pain processing, proper and emotional difficulty processing of the pain. I do agree that like any kind of neural connection, we can strengthen it or weaken it with practice or focused attention toward whatever we want to distract ourselves with that's not the pain. So I think that that is a legitimate aspect of it and a legitimate aspect of trying to rewire your brain so that your life is easier to manage and that you're mm -hmm. less upset about it. So I can really agree and understand and see the facility in that and see how that can improve a person's quality of life. However, I do deep in my heart believe that there is a legitimate, useful survival-based reason that hurting hurts us on an emotional mm -hmm. level. I think that there is a real danger to attempting to sever the thread between those two things and that it can ultimately and has, at least in my anecdotal experience, led to me treating myself as more of an object whenever I was like, okay, so how do I hack myself so that I just don't care about how much it hurts mm. so that I can do more things because I should be doing things. And once I stopped trying to hack myself so much, then I felt just a lot better emotionally and physically. Interesting. I have two thoughts and a question. Great. Uh, my first thought is, I think that's a good point about the dangers of separating the two. Uh, I can see like an emotional
emotional being almost like a yellow light and then the physical pain being almost like a red light. Yeah, yeah, it's a good way to look at it. Yeah, uh, one is obviously don't do this and the other one is this is why we don't do this. <laughs> yeah. But then I also think about people who try to do uh, like, you know, the Vulcan thing where they're like, I just don't want to feel emotion at all. Yes. Good or bad because there are things that you sacrifice in that and there are things that you close off your perception to when you lose that empathy. Yeah, definitely. But then the question I have for you, um, when it comes to almost like the mind over matter, when it comes to pain, there are things uh, like, uh, remember the Burning Monk? Yes. He, uh, for those who don't know who the Burning Monk was, he uh, self-immolated in a demonstration, meaning he lit himself on fire in a suicidal protest act. And he was able to maintain sitting in the same position until he passed away. And in fact, the only thing that was able to survive the blaze was his heart, which has actually been preserved. Wow. Was now, he protesting the Vietnam War? What was he protesting? I believe, let me actually check really quick. I believe it, uh, uh, it was the treatment of uh, those in his religion. Oh, okay. But let me, uh, I want to make sure that I do this man a service. Sure. So uh, I apologize. I'm probably going to butcher this poor man's name. Know that I do have the utmost respect for him. But uh, this is from Wikipedia. Teach Quang Duc, that's probably wrong, that got a little German at the end, was a uh, Vietnamese Mahayana Buddhist monk who burned himself to death at the busy Saigon Road intersection on the 11th of June, 1963. Quang Duc was protesting the persecution of Buddhists by the South Vietnamese government, but uh, he was essentially protesting the uh, South Vietnamese government for their treatment of the Buddhist monks in the area. Okay, so I knew that Vietnam was involved. Yeah, in you did. Way. You did. You got the era correct. That's all right. So, uh, it's one of those things that's been kind of rumored, and I think in some degree confirmed that Buddhist monks as part of their meditation will kind of practice this mind over matter. What are your thoughts on that? Um, I actually, I'm glad you asked that because I, I do have like quite a few thoughts on that, but it boils down to, I used to subscribe to Christianity and I thought that was the way to live the most fulfilling life and make me the happiest. And then I kind of detached from that and started looking more into um, Buddhism uh, and was like in the, mod the middle path moderation. Uh, it seemed really like empathy based and there there's a lot I think to be gained from kind of most religious belief systems you can glean wisdom from. But ultimately for me I think I've discovered I think particularly over the last few years because I had to detach from things I had wanted for a long time career wise particularly and so I had to learn to um, decide I had to decide basically whether to get attached to things again. And I think the idea of non-attachment is something that's cultivated in Buddhism as kind of a positive thing that regardless of the way things are going, I can cultivate an inner peace in myself. And I think that's really resilient. But I think for me, when I tried to live that way, possibly because I wasn't doing it right, but <laughs> when I tried to live that way, I felt deader because I wasn't engaging. I feel like to engage with the world is to want, like as a human, like if we're really experiencing things, this is just my own experience, but for really like talking to people and putting like opening our hearts and like, you know, looking at the grass outside when we're there and just really trying to like be here as we're here, the natural thing is going to be to want things. And mm -hmm. I also believe the way that interacts with certain kinds of trauma is really negative. So if you're raised uh, where you don't have many resources available to you, to, so you learn to deaden your wants because mm -hmm. you're never going to get the things that you need or want from that perspective. I think that you could think that you've done the right thing 
from a Buddhist perspective because you don't want the things anymore. So, mm-hmm. but I think wanting and fulfill, be, ha- having those wants fulfilled is like part of the fun and joy of living. I think surprises are just as fun and like not being attached to an outcome. I think particularly recently with Game of Thrones, <laughs> if you weren't attached to an outcome, then you would have had a better time. Like, and That's you fair. is That's the fair. proverbial you, like anyone, yeah. you know, if, if we didn't have like, well, I want this to happen or I need Cersei to die in a way that's not just damn rock. <laughs> <laughs> Like, we would have been like, oh, well, I just enjoyed it as it unfolded, you know, but mm-hmm. we were attached to this and some of that attachment created that discomfort. But like, that discomfort is engagement with the world. That discomfort is like the living, the working out of how you feel about the thing and what's your relationship to the thing. And I think that the more that we try to detach and not want, the less we're in relationship with others and the world and ourselves. And it made me feel like my world was getting smaller and smaller. That's fair. That, that's fair. Um, I think uh, when you break things down to a cold hard math it's very easy to become cold and hard <laughs> so i do believe like you know there's a degree of you can dissociate to the healthy yeah like, just because just as you can uh, overly empathize or overly sympathize you can take things to a literal point or you can take things so emotionally that it actually ends up impairing you yeah i completely agree and i i think i also don't want to come off as like well i'm living every moment you know fully because i part of the way that i function in the world is partly dissociating like yeah. it's it's partly because of the physical pain it's partly because of anxiety and so I know that like if I just start like deliberately trying to dissociate I'm just gonna never come back <laughs> well so everyone's uh to use a more you know Buddhist term uh everyone's inner peace everyone's enlightenment is completely different because all of our experiences are unique and at the end we are unique individuals sure uh, I know that I've had my rants about none of us being snowflakes, which actually comes from a different place. But because our experiences are so unique, what will make you happy won't necessarily be the same things that make me happy. You're a cat person. I'm a dog person. <laughs> you like to stay at home. I like to jump off of really tall things and then go really fast. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so obviously our peace comes from different places. Sometimes they come from the same place. I think it's just being mindful of what affects you in positive ways and what affects you in negative ways. And you can't completely disassociate one or the other. Yeah. And I also, from what I know with Buddhism, you know, it's the middle path. So I'm sure it's not all about, you know, dissociating completely or not wanting anything. But I, I am also (laughs) a black and white (laughs) person and I'm a Libra and I'm always trying to navigate like the, um, middle ground between the extremes but in doing so I'm always like flinging myself from extreme to extreme (laughs) also uh, Buddhism like all religions it's not there's just like this one broad stroke and that's all of Buddhism sure because that's like saying every Christian's the same it's like really every Baptist is just like every Catholic you've ever met right yeah so I I know that there's like yeah there are nuances in there but Um, just speaking from my own you know I think I think there are limits to kind of I think there are good natural necessary limits to Yeah, very true. I have a little slash at the end of that paragraph that says rant over, so (laughs) moving on. (laughs) I knew I needed to put that dividing. All right, Lacey, you're done (laughs) with that bit. There are people who have, uh, they are known as pain asymbolics, and they don't have that negative emotional experience. They're born without that system or without that integration. I uh, wanted to just throw that out there. I have complicated feelings about it, but it's not my experience, so I'm not... You mean humans are born differently? (laughs) Not every human's born the same? I know, I know. It's really ground-shaking stuff. Oh my god.
Um, there's also, I read a case of a woman who has primary sensory neuropathy, so she can't sense most touch, but she can sense the pleasant sensations that go along with it because her emotional touch system is intact, but her physical pain processing oh, system isn't. That is interesting. Yeah. So she's like, I don't really know what that pressure or temperature is, but she knows whether it feels good or bad. Yeah. Um, I actually, there was an article and I don't remember if it was on CNN or New York Times or, but they were talking to a woman who was saying that when she gave birth to her children, she remembered pressure, but she doesn't experience pain like other people. Wow. And so when people would talk about the pain of childbirth, she was like, well, you're all just a bunch of wimps. And it was when she got older, she found out that the way that her body was wired, she just doesn't feel pain like other people. And then she was like, I now kind of feel bad because I used to tell people to suck it up. Oh. I didn't understand how they had such a huge reaction to pain or how cold or heat could cause a pain. Wow. Because she was just born without it. And to her, it was the most normal thing in the world. <laughs> yeah, I, that's fascinating to me, this idea that um, I think we're like, we're on a spectrum that, you know, this yeah. lady's at the one end with like, I just don't have that experience. And I think I, I judge myself, you know, sometimes for like, well, like this shouldn't matter to you as much. This either physical or emotional thing should just like, why are you not over this? And I'm 32. And one day I'm going to learn that like, I am just sensitive. I just feel things intensely mm. on a physical and emotional level and no amount of me shaking my own shoulder saying, stop feeling that. Is ever going to change it? Yeah. <laughs> uh, one of the things uh, related to touch and therapy was the degree to which a person, a counselor, wanted to touch their clients. And I was like, none at all, thank you! <laughs> I don't want to touch most people! <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, I am, unless I know you, unless we have reached that level, you're one of the few people that has reached that level, I am not a toucher. Yeah, but a lot of it's cultural. Yeah. And so there are, there are cultures who are a lot, like, the, the way you connect is through touch, and I think it's an age issue as well, like, um, sometimes older people don't get much touch, or people who are isolated don't get much touch, and so if your role is a therapeutic person, then you might, like, put a hand on the shoulder sometimes, or, like, if someone is grieving, you might, you know, reach out and clasp their hand, or... Yeah, yeah. I understand that. And so I'm like, I get the contextual nature, but I was just like, well, easy to answer question for me. <laughs> I'm just imagining like sitting like on the sofa, talking about some trauma and then being like, it's okay. And like yeah. setting a hand like on the back of my hand or like on my knee. Of course, now this feels very sexual, <laughs> but I'm just not cool with that. Right. And I think some people would really want that or, you know, and so it's, it's about navigating that like subjective experience between two people. But I think it's interesting because touch can be therapeutic, you know, like, yeah. uh, babies need to be held. That's that's a, something that's been scientifically established is mm -hmm. that they need that. And so touches all of these like wrapped up complicated emotional things along with the physical. It's to me, it's the one that's most tied and for my own experience, but it's to the most emotionally tied. And I think even smell is emotional, but I feel like touch is more so. Yeah. But I, real, I realized I was, I was laying awake a couple nights ago thinking about this podcast, thinking about how, what was coming up. And I realized that, oh, I am not, not touching. I am only earned touchy. Yes. It's only, and because I'm like, I, I hug you every time I see you. Like, I want to hug my friends when I see them. I want to, like, be touchy with people that I'm close to. If I'm sitting, like, I realized, um, went out drinking with friends uh, last weekend, and uh, I'm a few drinks in, and I'm playing with my friend's hair. I've got my hands all in her hair, and she's like, oh, it feels so good. I love it. And I'm like, I would, A, you know, not do this sober, but, you, but B, wouldn't do this to, like, somebody I don't yeah. feel well, physically I mean, you're also on E, so I mean... <laughs> It was mostly just tacos and margaritas. <laughs> 
But a mild amount of ecstasy. <laughs> no, just just weed. There's a study that showed that people who have warmer hands on first impression are described as being emotionally warmer. So like mm. we experience that physical emotional connection to temperature when we meet people. Like it's wrapped up in our first impressions. I'm usually fucking frozen. Yeah, and that's part of my thing also as a ther like what I was trying to become a therapist was like I people will sense that from me. Like if I try to fake it and if I'm like here hand on knee because I'm supposed to like you're gonna feel how I don't want to do that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I usually uh, make it very clear, like before I physically comfort somebody. I usually say I usually don't do this before I do it, just to kind of like be like that precursor. This is going to be awkward for both of us. <laughs> like, look, I'm it's not you. I'm doing this for you. Um, uh, Lee goes to bed before I do, and he's asleep and snoring when I get in there, and so I know he's completely out. But he'll hear me come in kind of and shift a little, and I'm like, I know you're asleep, but you're somehow aware mm -hmm. that I'm here. And I'll get into bed, and he rolls over and puts his arms around me, and I'm like, How do you know? Or he'll he'll throw his arm up over his head so I can get in, and I'm like, How? Like you are asleep, sir. <laughs> <laughs> There's something underneath that's working. Yeah. Um, and kind of going into the idea of different senses tying into one another. I mean, it's how we function day to day. You are looking and listening while you're walking. If I hear you shout my name from behind me, I don't need to turn around to know that you're behind me because right. I can hear the distance. I know that it's you because I recognize your voice. Or maybe it's someone who can do your voice. I don't know. But I know where you are and that it's you. And partly the context in which you approach me based on the tone of your voice. All without having to see you. Yeah. And so different things tie into each other. And uh, part of my, my psychic theory ties into uh, how we're always a little bit aware of things. We're always thinking about things. And he probably knows Lacey comes to bed after me. Some part of his brain knows this is what it's going to sound like when she's coming in. Yeah. And this is my time to cuddle. Yeah. It's so sweet. Yeah. And scientific. <laughs> <laughs> Science, the most romantic thing on the planet. So there, there's just a couple like related things I want to touch in on. That's my, that's what I've got about the five senses. There's just a, a couple experiential things related that I wanted to touch in on. Um, the first of which is hallucinogens. My note is that, like everything does, reading about psychedelics makes me want to try them. Hearing about people doing them makes me want to try them. All of it, I'm like, this is an experience I have not yet had, and my body is like, yeah, why not? So, um, can I splice one soundbite in? Yeah, what? Can it be in vogue going, free your mind? Yes, please do, please do. <laughs> <laughs> so I have this great quote. Uh, it's from an it's from a book actually. I read it in article form on psychedelic information theory by James Kent, and I, it's a little bit of a it's a couple sentences, but I thought the end of it's really interesting. So I wanted to lead you there with this quote: "Human perception is linear, but humans live in a non-linear system. Hmm. Psychedelics destabilize linear perceptions of space and time. This allows perception to exist in multiple states at once, much like a quantum computer that processes multiple simultaneous possibilities." Abilities. Interesting. And I actually really like that. Yeah, the idea that um, possibly with psychedelics, our brains are processing things in a way that's not linear and kind of able to hold the same idea from multiple angles more easily. Yeah. And I was recently talking to uh, somebody that I know who's done uh, a few of these kinds of psychedelic drugs, and this friend of mine was saying you can you can interact with the same information in multiple ways, but not understand really how you're processing it when when you're on some side 
psychedelics. Interesting. And I was like, what? That just makes me want to try it more. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but I, I like the idea that, uh, you know, maybe our brains are functioning more as a binary computer without that influence, mm-hmm. but that it's opened up to holding multiple possibilities at once. Yeah. It. Well, that also makes me think about uh, dreaming. Because uh, when you're dreaming, it makes total sense to you when you're in the dream. Yes. And your reality is consistently shifting. Things are always changing. But it's when you wake up and you try to draw a line through that. You're just like, you can't you can't draw a line through a circle. Right. Yeah. It's uh, it's not linear. Yeah. You don't get the same story if you go across the circle than if you follow it around. I just smacked the crap out of my microphone. Oh. So yeah, that just makes me think about, you know, how dreams make sense because they're always evolving. They're moving in that kind of way. Uh, yeah. I thought that was great. Uh, this book also talks about how part of like stable perception is being able to work with internal models, like mm-hmm. your idea and concept of something and the external world and being able to navigate between what the image you hold of this or the idea you hold of the world and like what the reality is. When you blend those things and when you're unable to tell them apart, that's part of what psychosis is, is mm. um, seeing or um, processing things or hearing things or experiencing something on a sensory level that is not, as far as we know, present in the physical world. Interesting. And not being able to tell the difference. One of the most fascinating things I learned uh, when I was in art school <laughs> uh, is about why Picasso's art evolved in the way it did. And because if you look at his stuff when he's very young, it's very realistic, it's very detailed, and it kind of becomes a little bit more abstract over time, and then it becomes cubism. Yes. And when he was doing cubism, most people are just kind of like, okay, it's weird, looks like you're on acid, whatever. But if you look at it through the lens in which he intended, which is he's trying to capture something from every angle, mm. it suddenly makes sense. Wow. And not just the visual angle, but emotional angle, all the undertones, he tries to convey all of that in a single piece. So if you take that instead of being like, why is her eyeball on her butt? <laughs> if you look at it in that context, suddenly his art makes so much more sense. And it's actually brilliant. Picasso himself was a creepy little fucking freak, but it's fascinating to think about that somehow he was able to tap into the seeing multiple perceptions at the same time and trying to put it in a tangible linear way. And that's part of looking at the idea of someone's brain working differently as being like a gift, you know, and not a disability or not a negative experience. Yeah. All right. Couple more things. UFOs. (laughs) There is a whole website. Do tell. (laughs) I am here for this. (laughs) There's a whole website. It's called Limits on Human Perception and How They Influence UFO sighting reports. And it's all devoted to like the very specific ways in which all of our human senses are only able to pick up whatever range we can pick up and how on each sense, like where we have the opportunity to mess up or to misinterpret or to think we saw Mm -hmm. or heard something that was not the thing that we saw or heard. Um, They talk about a lot of specific terminology, but uh, for example, they say our eyes are designed to see things in a limited range and in relationship to other objects. We really have a very hard time telling what size something is if we don't have <clears throat> some kind of scale. That makes sense. And so um, if we're observing a UFO or something in the sky and we don't know what it is and we don't see anything that we can really judge against it and we don't know how far away it, like there's no way to tell real size uh, yeah. from that. So if you saw 
a drone over your neighborhood one night, but you didn't hear its distinct buzzing to know its distance because it's hovering and it's moving in strange angles, you may think that's a far off UFO. Right. But like, we just don't, you're not getting, you're not able to perceive all of the information that's available to you about that. Also, uh, our eyes aren't as good at seeing light when it's scattered. Um, But I thought that was cool. Just for an, for instance, just take UFOs. Like maybe Mm -hmm. we're, maybe we're thinking things are UFOs that aren't, or maybe we're thinking things aren't that are, right? Like, it yeah. could actually go either way. Well, uh, you have the the uh, there's the uh, lunar optical illusion where it looks larger near the horizon yes. than it does in the middle of the sky, and that's because when it's in the middle of the sky, there's nothing to gauge its size against. But when it's closer to the horizon, because you're comparing it to the size of the buildings or the trees or the mountains, then you think it's larger because you're comparing it to another size. And if you ever think that I'm just full of shit, next time you see the full moon on the horizon, measure how big it is with something like a pencil, like hold it out at arm's length and see how far up the pencil your thumb is before it's the size of the moon. And it's still... And then when it's in the middle of the sky, it's going to be exactly the same. It's all an optical illusion. Wow! But again, that's based on the information that our brain is receiving. And so the best thing we can do is know that we don't know it all. Yeah, <laughs> or you even said, like, we have a blind spot in our eye. A literal that's, blind that, that, spot. That's there that we just don't even know about. Um, the, the last bit on the UFO site that I thought was just my favorite part of it was the, uh, the idea that our emotional and cognitive states can interfere with our sensory processing, which I think is something that makes sense. But they say, for example, excitement could cause your skin to prick. Um, heat, fear, allergies. And so you could be like, I felt like a static thing. All my hairs in my arms are standing on end, but that could not be from an outside influence. You know, that could be something that's internally causing that response in you. Also feeding into that is having your reactions or suggestion cause something, which also kind of ties a little bit into mass hysteria. Mm. Yes, there are. It doesn't mean that every pain, every sensation you get is a fake one, but... There is a little bit more outside influence than you may think about on the surface. Uh, and all of that doesn't mean you're not experiencing it. Yeah. Like yeah. pain that pain that you force yourself to have or that somebody else, like that's still pain you're feeling regardless of where the source is. Yeah. In the 90s, there was this weird renaissance of like stigmata and angels and things <laughs> like so that. There so was! We got very into Christian theology in the 90s. <laughs> I don't know what was going on. <laughs> But I remember there was a special on Fox, and I felt like Fox was always having specials like, we're gonna dissect the alien as the alien autopsy. Um, <laughs> well, that gives that in the X Files, so like, what's what? This was the era of the X Files, too, but I remember there was one specifically about stigmata. Mm. And there was this woman who they were saying, we're gonna watch her through the entire process of stigmata, and you follow her through the whole thing. And they also had like a doctor that was coming on. And one thing, things he was saying is if people think you know there are holes in their hands or something they may rub the area or that area because they're focusing on it so much will become more tender and it may start to blister or bleed and it has the appearance or the illusion of maybe being holes in the hands much like stigmata Mm. and all it is is just partly you're doing it to yourself and partly your brain wanting this to happen so much is creating a situation where it can emulate it to a degree. Wow. (laughs) And I I just remember like seeing that and be like, oh, so if I really think about it, I can pretend I'm Jesus. Okay. (laughs) Good to know. (laughs) 
But yeah, I think that's really fascinating. That's how much influence we have in our yeah. own experience. I feel like we've touched on so many like very rich topics today. I'm excited mm. about this conversation. Uh, I want to end on synesthesia. I've got a good quote here from Lena Gregor's article, Making Sense of the World Several Senses at a Time from Scientific American. Quote, people with synesthesia have a particularly curious cross-wiring of the senses in which activating one sense spontaneously triggers another. They might see colors when they hear noises, associate particular personalities with days of the week, or hear sounds when they see moving dots. Synesthesia is thought to be genetic, and recent research even suggests that it may confer an evolutionary advantage. Most synesthetes don't notice anything strange about the way they perceive their environments, until it is brought to their attention. So we can't ever know whether our own sensory experience is what somebody else is experiencing. All right, I, I don't have, I'm not sure I've got a great way to um, totally end this, just with the idea that we can never fully know even what is available via all of the sensory information. Yeah, if our senses, let's just throw out a hypothetical number. We probably can only sense maybe hypothetically less than 1% of the universe. And of those senses we do have access to, less than 1% of that. So all of that to say, we humbly enter into this podcast knowing that we don't know anything and really excited about figuring out how to know more. <laughs> all right, this has been Crackpot Cocktail Hour. Cheers. Cheers. We don't actually have the cheers, it's just me going, Bing!